I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello, and welcome to episode 62 of the Building Sustainability Podcast. This week, I am joined by George Masood and Summer Islam from Material Cultures. Bit of news first. It is Movember. It's my first time doing Movember. And for those of you who don't know, I am growing a moustache for the month of November uh, in aid of men's mental health support. I had my first clean shave since I think I was able to grow a beard and instantly felt naked and very much disliked seeing the child in the mirror. Um, well, now I am two weeks in, uh, and so the moustache is starting to look pretty dirty. Um, yeah, head on over to my Instagram, Jeffrey the Natural Builder, uh, to see how it's looking. So why am I supporting this cause? So why am I supporting this cause? Suicide is the biggest cause of death in men under 50 years old, which is a pretty staggering statistic. 75% of suicides are male and the construction industry, which is my industry, uh, has a rate three times higher than the national average. Um, I'm also supporting this cause because I've lost friends to suicide um, and I too myself have suffered from mental health wobbles, um, sort of starting around university age and Back then, I didn't know, I didn't know how to get help. I didn't even really know what was going on. Um, but what I do know is it was an incredibly lonely place. Um, um, but now, having sort of been through it and, and got help over the years, I now see the warning signs and I can take action early. Um, and mostly that's by talking to people, whether that's friends or professionals. Um, so I really, I want to support this cause because it's, you know, personally pretty relevant to me, but also I think we need to squash this, um, this preconceived idea, the stigma around mental health and particularly around males 
being able to talk about you know their problems or feeling down and know that it's really okay to get help and to ask for help and no one is going to think any less of you so i'm going to put links to mental health support in the show notes um, as well as a link to my movember fundraiser Um, in other news the tiny house is coming along the exterior is i would say 99 percent done i'd say there is maybe two days of little snagging details to tick off i am incredibly pleased with how it's turned out uh it's clad with uk grown cedar which is a really stunning wood and do you know what it's cheaper than the siberian or canadian imported stuff so if you're in the uk support your uk growers the rest of the exterior is clad with cork insulation uh, that is doing a dual purpose of of keeping me warm it's also a rain screen so it's keeping me dry now i have moved inside the house and i just yesterday finished uh, putting all the wood fiber insulation inside i've got an air tightness membrane to go in and then the cladding begins this week so i really can't wait to see um how the the space changes and how it becomes not a building site but a home Right, so before, just before we jump into this episode, um, quick time to thank our new building sustainability patrons. They are Adam Scott, Joseph Ellis and Oliver Waite. Thanks to the three of you so, so much for supporting the podcast and indeed to all the other patrons. Uh, You truly rock my world and put food in my tummy. If you would like to join the supporters, then head to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. And the final, final thing I've just remembered is that we've started a building sustainability community Facebook page. Uh, You can find that by searching for building sustainability community. And the idea there is that it's a place to discuss and share ideas, feedback Uh, I will be logging in there occasionally to see what people are saying. So yeah, join and be part of the conversation. Because I think one of the things that's really come about from this podcast is realising that as a community, we're we're really strong. Um, So yeah, hopefully you all get involved. Okay, let's hand you over to George and Summer. Something just to, to clarify, a little later in the episode, we talk about a an issue that was had at the design museum when we uh, turned up to plaster and what it was was there was some wood wool board inside an alcove and the idea was that we would plaster onto the wood wool board and bring it out level with the edge of the alcove when we got there the wood wool board was actually already at the level of the alcove so there was no room for all the plaster we were going to put on and so the the sort of solution that everyone thought of was what do we swap out this wood wall board for for something thinner so that we can put our put our coat on and everyone kind of thought about plasterboard but we came up with a different solution which it actually involved using the existing wood wall board and putting scraping on a really really thin coat of plaster just really sort of pushing it into the surface and that that changed the the aesthetic a tiny amount probably no one would ever notice except for plasterers hopefully that makes sense of what we talk about later i hope you enjoy i'll speak to you at the end 
Material Cultures is a, uh, we're a not-for-profit organization. Um, we uh, investigate and advocate the use of bio-based materials in the built environment. We're interested in kind of reimagining uh, an alternative ecology of systems for a post-carbon future. And um, we're interested in how we can challenge uh, current building material palettes, uh, technologies, processes, uh, supply chains, regulations um, to transform uh, the way that we build and the culture around our industry. That's great. I want to talk about all of that. <laughs> well, so uh, materials is clearly a, a big part of uh, what you do and what's sort of different. And what is your, your sort of material palette or what are the, the things that you champion? We work a lot with different bio-based materials by which generally we mean things that have been grown. So hemp and uh, timber and straw. But we also work as much as we can with a palette of materials that are drawn directly from a landscape. It might be specific to a project context. So, you know, in Buckinghamshire, we tend to work with clay. We're interested in working uh, with stone and lime and testing out different, I suppose, what you might refer to as vernacular technologies in contemporary construction and how they can be applicable at scale and do you think i mean you've sort of mentioned that you're you're kind of researching and and sort of developing this uh, how where do you sort of see w- where we are on on the sort of journey to to sort of implementing this large scale it's interesting because george and i were talking about this yesterday and in lots of ways i think we feel it's it's very accessible technology and the material palette is all around us what seems to be the limiting factor is the sort of cultures around the building industry more than anything. You know, there's loads of demonstrator projects across the country. There's loads of evidence that these materials are uh, easy to use. They can be affordable. They can be very effective. They are very beautiful. But there seems to be kind of cultural resistance to their application, legislative barriers that make it like difficult or in some cases impossible to use them. But what, well, the supply chains are also the problem. Like if we're, if we're being honest and you look at the materials that are available today in the UK, depending on how, I suppose, binary you are about insisting that materials are supplied locally, we still have supply chains which are young for bio-based materials. You know, the materials are accessible. They could be being grown more. There could be being more production of them. We could be importing less. uh, Or even if we must use imports, they could be imported from more sustainable forests or more sustainable landscapes. But... At the moment, the, I suppose the efficacy of the concrete and steel industry is evident in all of our supply chains. It's so it's, it's a great model. <laughs> it's very effective. You know, they're regionally manufactured and distributed. Well, things like cement plants are all over the UK. And we need to get bio-based materials to a place where the regional growing and processing of materials is happening all over the country. And then those supply chains beget, become bolstered. So that it's, we're not in a position in the future where if you really want to work with a particular bio-based material, you know you've got to import it from Austria or it's being manufactured in Cornwall but your project happens to be on the Scottish borders so you're kind of transporting things great distances. And it feels like that would be very possible. You know, from the, from the research we've been doing, you can see that those, the infrastructure is there but because there hasn't been the will to change, I guess there hasn't. Yeah, those industries haven't got to the place where they have the economies of scale of the other industries. Mm-hmm. 
So we're close, but we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it fascinating that uh, kind of the, the cement production is is sort of a model of local sustainability, uh, yet it's you know, a sort of destructive material. Yeah, I think there is a funny contradiction there, but you've got to marvel at their efficacy. Like, it is good. <laughs> they're, all, they're all over the place, aren't they? You know, if you yeah. Google a cement plant wherever you, you're, you are in the country, there's one nearby where you yeah. can get some cement from, whether it's being directly manufactured there or it's a distribution centre. There still is always some somewhere near you. You can go to a Wix, you can go to a Travis Perkins, and you can buy it. And we want to get to a place where low embodied carbon construction materials are also on those shelves or available from independent regional producers and manufacturers, I suppose, in an ideal world. You want to build local jobs into the economy and different yeah. places. But yeah, one of those two models would be good. But I suppose also like the the issue is it's much bigger than that as well, is that actually like our industries and cultures are very much rooted in like exploitative and extractive practices and we need to change our relationship to materials, to making and to um to to how we understand these processes and we create environments where mm-hmm. we are able to <clears throat> where it's more kind of a, a, a holistic approach to mm-hmm. um to uh, to the whole process yeah we've been talking a lot more in the office now about farming which feels like a sort of parallel but very important mm. track for the work that we've been doing and the conversations that we've been having because as soon as you start talking about bio-based materials, you have to engage with like, landscape in a way which is sustainable, but also sustains society's existing demands on land. And then you have to have a conversation about how this farming as a kind of colonial model, and then how would you proceed into the future with drawing from the land, which in a way which gives food, but also materials, but also carbon sinks and also recreational use. Now, there are lots of things we want to do with this island and it's not that big and we have lots of homes that we need to have built or we need to reimagine the way that land ownership is structured but there's those are all really big questions and so we've been talking a lot more about models like agroforestry where you start to overlap these different things which are productive or i guess productive in different ways like productive in terms of biodiversity or ecology but also in terms of something you could draw materials from or places people could live and how those things would all o- overlap in a in a sustainable way. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what agroforestry is? Yeah, I think it's a very broad term, actually. There's lots of different models of agroforestry, and depending on your experience of it, those other models can feel quite, I think, quite alien. So, anyway, so broadly, agroforestry is uh, interrelation, I think, of farming, which is also a broad term, and forestry. Uh, so there are models which are silvo-arable, where you might mixed together the growing of trees and the growing of crops and there are models which are silver pastoral where you blend the growing of trees with the grazing of animals and in the uk i think traditionally there has been more silver pastoral agroforestry there are models in the in the past Uh, in recent history and also in the past okay Uh, it's not a huge cultural practice let's say it might have been more integral to farming in the past where you imagine that you would shelter animals, grazing animals, in the wood, in the woods over the winter, for example. There are examples, I think, of that happening in the New Forest and other places in the UK that, that um, Forestry England have been running pilot projects around um, in the last few decades. 
and you can imagine you can, i suppose in that context you might send sheep or pigs to sort of snack on acorns and like shrubs below trees and that feels like a really productive relationship in that you can imagine the benefit health benefits to the grazing animals of eating something which isn't just grass uh, they also get to sit in the shade of the trees and they get sheltered from the kind of harsh elements of the weather but that's a model which draws very heavily on um, pr- the production of meat essentially and I suppose we've been interested in an silvo-arable agroforestry because of the potential it might have to offer the opportunity to grow trees alongside crops and those crops could be for food like wheat but also that wheat straw might be used in construction as a kind of waste byproduct of making wheat or it could be hemp alongside trees looking at how you might get kind of the the benefits of different things which are productive which start to mix a set of different species together so you get more biodiversity and you're essentially looking at not developing more monoculture growing in the future which is one of the concerns that we have for a push towards more bio-based construction is how you do that in time in a way which doesn't perpetuate the problems of landscape management that we have had in the past so how could you have regenerative land management which is still productive for the many different things that we need to draw from the land and it's a really big problem really um, we're really excited to try and de- start growing and ha- running pilot projects of land use where you start to mix trees and crops. Interesting. Uh, do you know what I thought I was talking to architects? It's much bigger, bigger picture stuff. Sorry, was that, 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 that sounds a little bit like an insult. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean well, it like that. <laughs> yeah, broad, broad range of interests. Where What's it called yeah. when you're like a generalist but not a specialist? Jack of all trades, master of not many that's that's interesting i'm actually um so i'm about to move to to into a woodland and um the there's woodland has a a huge squirrel population because they've been feeding pheasants in in the uh in the woods um so i'm moving in there to get rid of the the shoot and um one of my things is going to be to sort of reverse the damage that all the squirrels are doing. So none of the trees are growing because the squirrels take all the bark off as soon as they get to a certain age. Um, so there's a huge bracken problem. And one of my thoughts is to run some pigs um, in in this woodland uh, as a way of doing sort of bracken uh, eradication, I guess, which leaves space to grow uh, you know, productive things. Um, I hadn't really considered, I'd just thought about growing more trees i hadn't thought about you know putting crops in there as well well it it has different successes depending on the crops and the interrelationship of the different plants i suppose so already there even without having begun i know there are lots of problems around trying to develop a model like this you know shading is a problem (laughs) you don't want your crops to be in the shade so you have to Mm -hmm. i think some of the more effective models for what we're talking about would be more like clumping we have like clumps of trees next to clumps of other things but there, okay. there's a kind of uh, maybe an ecology of insects and birds and things that kind of work together and feed off the mix of species uh, but there are models like you're talking about i mean what you're describing is agroforestry it's just the, the benefit is for the land as well as for the animals and that kind of mm-hmm. point um but you know it, when, if you're talking about productive things at low level i suppose it sort of comes down to nuts and berries and other things which also are great to be growing yeah and we, we are interested in 
what materials you could draw from things which haven't previously been considered to be productive. So within a woodland, leaves and thinnings from woodland, they have a potential use in developing sheet materials or also different types of insulation. So it'd be interesting to see what we can make with them. Okay, well, let's talk. Um, so we talked a little bit about materials. I guess sort of cultures is, is you know, uh, taking a uh, lead from your the name of your organisation, Material Cultures. I mean, how maybe do you see the cultures at the moment and what are, what's the culture you need to develop or how are you sort of aiming to, to change it? So I suppose the cultures bit applies in the way that we structure uh, ourselves and the relationship to each other and the people that we work with. Um, and also to kind of see a change in the way that the industry is um, is set up. We like to kind of think of alternative structures that allow us to kind of uh, think of much better, more imaginative futures. Um, and this is kind of using uh, less kind of, or that are not necessarily rooted in exploitative and extractive practices and frameworks um so it's not just the systems of material extraction and processing and consumption or building but also it's the way that we relate to one another and the way that we um relate to to the materials themselves and the spaces that we build one thing i did notice uh, when i was perusing your your website um and looking i watched a presentation uh, summer you did uh, recently and there, there was a big focus on you know the people who are i don't know if advising use the right word contributors uh you know that everyone got their their place and you know got recognized and i feel like that is I and mean, it's something as a builder i've sort of come up against uh, uh there's a feeling of sort of you know the architect's show their project at the end and go, look at what we've done. And with no sort of recognition of anyone that's, that's perhaps, you know, helped or in fact, you know, informed their, uh, their workings. Um, so yeah, that was a, it was a very welcome, I felt very, uh, uh, you know, part of a thing. <laughs> For us, what's really important is this, to think about alternative relationships to the earth and to each other and, that are not necessarily transactional and um, they're instead kind of rooted in empathy and mutuality and um, really kind of understanding a, a different way of collaborating and working with each other um, that is uh, more productive and I think it's just healthier for everyone. I completely agree. That is an important element of how we work and it's also something that we are constantly um uh, talking to each other about and it's part of, i suppose of our internal cultures that we're trying to change one of the things that when i first met paloma that we started talking about was i suppose one of the issues around the construction industry and how combative it is you know the divide between architects and contractors and builders and the people that make the buildings or the, the way that the structures around building today are set up through the system of contracts means that before you've begun you're already in a confrontational place so your relationship your builder is always one where you're both kind of de-risk your your involvement in the project and then it's just a kind of mudslinging 
game from that point onwards. And it always feels really, really disappointing, really problematic and quite just point, bit pointless, a bit confusing. So I think there's so much about the way that we want to be involved in making buildings is also to be collaborated with lots of people and for everyone to be recognised and also because we're not experts in what we're doing. And that's one of the confusing things about the way a construction contract is set up is that you're working with somebody who's got lots of experience, but you're sort of uh, positioned in the contractual sense at like the top of the pyramid. And it just it feels very counterintuitive a lot of the time. So, I mean, how, uh, well, first of all, so the, it's three of you, is it? Material cultures? Yeah. Actually, Summer and Paloma um, are founding directors. Um, and maybe Summer wants to kind of explain the story of how how they started or do you mm. not, maybe not really? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we, we, <laughs> Paloma and I met in a toilet showroom and had a conversation about construction. Um, but no, I mean, I think, I think how we started is, is not as important maybe as how we've, we've gone on. There are three of us all primarily working on material cultures all the time, but we collaborate with lots of people and lots of people who are part of our team, but our team kind of ebbs and flows as projects come in and and go out great uh, what, so what got you to to thinking uh, and designing in this way was it something you were sort of conscious of coming through was it from your know, childhood was it coming through sort of education or was it starting to work in the industry or George and I have known each other since we were students so our, a lot of our working relationship has been built on the, the length of our friendship and and the, the strength of that and we've always had together I think an interest in working with different materials and the joy of different materials that you, in a way they can come together and a joy in architectural detailing uh, and also an, an interest we both share and Paloma has lots of experience of and love for the act of making. And I think the way we engage with projects is driven very much by that and also by Paloma's experience because she's worked for 10 years in construction, being actively involved in the making of the building that she, that she works on and has designed. George and I have experience from working within practices and then looking at ways to apply our interests maybe outside of that work and also how to maybe work against the structures that we found ourselves experiencing in conventional architectural practice. So I've found lots of things to value in the way that I worked when I worked with other people in offices, but also lots of things that I thought could be bettered. Um, so the way we design, I think, comes from, from that a sort of shared interest in, in making and materiality. I think maybe also to add to that, like our identities and the experience that we've had because of, uh, uh, because of our identities within kind of practice and within the industry, I think really inform a lot of how we want to create an alternative way of making um i heard someone talking just the other day about how there's this idea that culturally we're moving towards a place where there's not the sort of pyramid hierarchy but you know people will you know if someone's particularly strong in one area they will lead and feed in sort of in that area and then someone else if they're stronger somewhere else will lead and feed in and it's sort of a, a flat hierarchy is is sort of the way that culture is potentially sort of developing it seems like uh that's particularly true in your your practice well because the 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 hierarchies that dictate a lot of how we do things and how we exist are not sustainable 
in the long run. I think people have kind of realized that um, there are limitations uh, to to how we uh, how we relate to one another and uh, how we relate to or how, how we've kind of created this entire system that is based on this idea of abundance, which is actually false. Um, and so it has really forced a lot of people in the last decade to really rethink what what it is that or how it is that we uh, we can create an alternative ecology which is more sustainable and when i talk about sustainable i mean not just environmentally but also socially and economically and i think an entire spectrum around the idea or the concept of sustainability i hope that made sense yes absolutely oh i guess um one thing that interested me is that you're uh, a not-for-profit. I was wondering, what do you think the sort of benefits of of that are? Well, I don't know if many benefits have materialised yet. <laughs> 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 uh, very, it was very important to us when we started, and it, it is very important to us still, that material cultures shares what we learn and what we do with other people, because what we talk about in our work is building a culture an industry a culture in the industry of working with low carbon materials and that, that that culture is effective at scale and at the moment where we are in the industry it feels like any research that's being developed and contributes to that should be accessible but also because we engage with so many different institutions in the work that we do the three of us all teach at different places but the work that we're doing in those relationship with those institutions is often with students who are our direct collaborators and they contribute equally to the research that we do with them but in that context taking the work that is developed and sharing it for commercial gain goes against lots of the things that we talk about and the way we want to operate in the industry so that's really the reason that we we established ourselves as a not-for-profit we do work through different organizations but material cultures as a as a not-for-profit is it focused on research and design work and those two things together make sense to us at the moment as a not directly commercial enterprise uh okay so uh most recently i've uh, i've worked with you on uh the waste age exhibition do you want to explain what that that is the exhibition is about waste and the scale of the problem that we face globally in terms of how much material waste goes on and the kind of issues around that in society and culture and they curators chose to break the exhibition into three parts so you arrive into a space which is called peak waste which talks about the condition at the moment and i suppose the sort of status quo and also the quantity of waste you move from peak waste into a space called precious waste where the curators ask us to reimagine waste and look at different ways it could be considered precious and the different uses for the materials that we have started to discard as society and then the final room in the exhibition is called post waste um, that space looks at the future of a kind of a kind of post-carbon future in which we we cease to waste materials and we work with materials which maybe go back to the ground or compost or don't have a footprint a kind of long-lasting footprint on the earth and in our oceans and ecology great so we end up at the, the good stuff we end up at the good stuff exactly yeah maybe i'll talk a little bit about actually our approach to the exhibition mm -hmm. um and so 
our generally our approach to the kind of exhibition design has been based on using bio-based materials um, that are put together in a way uh, that is easily easily disassembled for reuse. Um, so we're we're interested in so we the kind of approach is about is using these bio-based materials that are obviously inherently low uh, embodied carbon and biodegradable, so essentially compostable. Um, but also a big part of, um, or a big element, uh, uh, or a big part of the design is uh, that there is this idea of uh, disassembly that is uh, taken into account. So that actually these materials have an afterlife um, and and can be reused in a completely different context. And the problem here is that actually what we've, why we were particularly interested in a project like this is, or in the context of this build is because, you know, we have worked a lot on on arts projects or or projects in in art spaces. Um, there is there is a problem in the cultural sector where actually there is a lot of materials that are regularly, constantly re- being used um, uh, for temporary use, uh, and uh, and then after a show is over or after a particular period of time when you know uh, something is built so that an artwork is being sold um there then these materials are disposed of and there is no real kind of conversation around where these materials are going to or what their afterlife may be so we were interested in bringing more sustainable practices and natural materials into um into this kind of space and that was a big part of the conversation and the process um uh, the design process that we had with the exhibi- with the museum and their curators so another element as well, maybe to, to mention about the about the build is we collaborated with um, with Urge um, on putting together an environmental audit. So we kind of we logged in our time, we logged in the emails that we sent to each other, you know, the attachments, the links, um, the transport to and from the museum, um, or you know any other kind of um, trips that we did that are related to this project. Um, and then also the materials that we used and the construction of these or the build itself. So, in t- so basically, there was an environmental audit that was produced um, for uh, the design and the build um, of the exhibition, which I think is is kind of a uh, is not necessarily something that you see happen very often. So, I think the museum had taken a kind of conscious decision to. Um, to do this so that they can then track any future exhibitions um, against this data that they've gathered for this show. Do you have some sort of numbers from from that? (laughs) We do, but it's quite misleading because no one else has done an audit of an exhibition design. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, one of the things about getting embodied carbon measures is that you then need to be able to compare them, you know, like, well, Mm. this is like three trips to New York on a jet airplane or whatever. Actually, we don't have any... Parity, any may, any way of establishing parity, because this is the this is the first time an audit of this nature has been conducted on a really big show by the design museum. I think we have the numbers, George can probably pull them up. Um, but uh, yeah, it was we we when we were presented with them, it was very difficult to understand what the consequences of what we yeah. had, what we had been told. Um, but it was really, it was a really nice and productive process working with Edge because they were really engaged in the material palette that we were talking about, and it's a really exciting thing to be doing for a big institution like the Design Museum, I think. 
Mm. Um, and it led a lot of our decision making. Anyway, the way that we tend to make decisions in material cultures is sort of looking at a palette of materials and deciding well, where, where are they going to come from? What might be their embodied carbon? You know, can they be sourced locally? And then those decisions inform what we choose to work with. Um, but working with Urge meant those kind of processes were formalised and, and also valued, actually. Mm. That, that decision-making was being supported by the museum was really great. And, and, and it, was, it was exciting because, like what George was saying, you know, the, the exhibition part we brought in, which weren't there already, so there were lots of stud walls that are part of the exhibition which were part of the last exhibition, so we didn't demolish those walls. There was a Charlotte Perrion show before before waste age and we kept the layout of most of that show and we also reused a lot of the calcium silicate blocks that that show had used as plinths and we redesigned um plinths for our show using some of those blocks um but the, the timber walls can come down and be taken apart that we worked that we designed and the adobe blocks to part of the show don't have mortar in them in those walls so it's great it's just a massive stacked wall of big adobe blocks that you can just take down and use again and it's that idea of a, a material store isn't it it's uh you know it's, they're just stacked up waiting to be used uh in another project it's really exciting because structural engineers don't tend to let you do that and then but they had lots no. of like, wobble tests no <laughs> i'm pushing the wall and seeing if it was going to go over and you built a it was a, a circular wall um which is inherently the the sort of strongest shape isn't it well yeah i mean there is a buttress um uh to to one one part of the wall um but yes actually the reason why we were able to 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 build it without any mortar is because the it's inherently structurally stable as a shape <laughs> the yeah. the curve which was really exciting i did yeah. i did find the 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 number actually so the oh, exhibition yeah, has a carbon footprint of 10 tons, uh, which apparently is equal to the average, um, the amount that uh, the average UK person emits in a year. Wow. That's, that's not very big. No. Was... And actually the worst, the worst element of the build are the screws right. uh, that were used to build uh, the cassettes or put, okay. to, to fix the cassettes together. And they're just regular old screws, aren't they? Yeah. Oh wow, that's I because I've been thinking a lot about my house build, and you know, every time I, I feel good that I've got a whole load of timber and wood fiber and cork and uh, you know sequestering carbon, and then I think that it's you know, I've just gone and bought another you know five hundred screws. Uh, <laughs> it's like every one of those I'm putting in, it's it's you know detracting from the. The positivity so, of my build. Jeffrey, the, the, the exhibition had uh, 4,800 uh, 4, screws. And um, that was about 1.2 tons. Wow. <laughs> so that, that could help you uh, calculate your, your footprint uh, okay. for the house. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but it's also about where they came from. And like, if they looked at distances and stuff for travel, didn't they? Material, like, yeah. yeah, the supply chains. But yeah, steel is the worst. Like, it's the hard, the hardest bit, the bit to get rid of are the ones that you. We don't really have lots of practical alternatives for at the moment. Mm. So like fixings and foundations. You can get if you can eliminate fixings and foundations. You know the builds are always going to be 
super, you know, kind of fairly low carbon. All of the fixings can be taken out and used again, but that's a lot about the skill of the, I guess, the skill of the the, the builder and also like the installer. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as those screw heads haven't been like <laughs> completely wrecked in the, on in, in the fixing, we'll be able to take them out and use them again somewhere else. Yes, um, but in a house, that's much less practical. Uh, but we, well, there are, I guess, there are alternatives. We worked. Some of our students this year made some dowel laminated timber, like floor slabs made with pallet wood, which they had then um, clamped together and tapped, and they made walnut hardwood, basically threaded rods, which they screwed in, and kind of that, that act of bringing those two different hardwoods and softwoods like tightly clamped the whole floor structure together. There's no glue and there's no screws. But there's really? a lot of labour in making a floor like that and also kind of skill, which isn't kind of culturally embedded everywhere. Yeah, yeah there was a product I saw a few years ago in a future build exhibition, um, which was just a collated, it was a nail gun that was putting in little, I think they were beach uh, sort of spike. Ah, downs. nice. Cool. Um, yeah, and you could just, you know, shoot it in. They're held together with plastic mm. stuff. Right. But, you know, that's it's certainly a, a step in yeah. the right direction, it seems. Mm. That's a slight tangent. Uh, so, yeah, materials for the design museum. So uh, we had these these cassettes, sort of the the display boards. There were two. There were two main interventions um, in the gallery. Uh, we had uh, we have one which is um, a series of partitions made of cassette walls. Or, uh, or cassettes that were stacked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are basically like boxes that are stacked on top of one another uh, to make up partitions. And they're made of eye joists, which are essentially softwood flanges, and the web is made of OSB board. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very kind of straightforward building system that can be assembled and disassembled really easily. Um, and... So the so the the eye joists make up the kind of frame of the cassette, um, and then you have uh, uh, wood wall panels um, that uh, that sit within that frame. Um, and so these the eye joists that were used were were quite deep, um, and the idea was that wherever uh, where wherever we had artwork to to hang, we would create an alcove um, within that kind of partition um uh, which is the depth of the eye joist um which was uh uh, rendered in clay which is what you did jeffrey with your team Mm -hmm. um and uh and the clay renders well we we maybe you want to talk about the process um of how we um where we got the materials from because i think that's probably probably better Yeah, I guess you. so. Oh, I'm not not used to talking on my own podcast. Uh, should we switch over? Should I should I turn host then? Yeah, yeah. So no, Jeffrey, <laughs> Jeffrey, do you want to tell us a bit about the the clay renders and and where the materials are are coming sure. from and what what the mix is? Yeah. Okay. So um, so part of well, my part of the project was to come up with the clay clay plasters, clay renders uh, for these display boards and. So I worked with Rebecca Reed. Rebecca Reed was the the main plaster designer. She's and um, what she doesn't know about plastering, goodness, <laughs> yeah, it, she's impressive uh, to say the least. Um, 
but we we worked with palette materials which was almost exclusively available from uh buckinghamshire uh sort of centered around hg matthews which um is they produce bricks sort of heritage bricks wood fired um and sort of modern types well actually the curved wall sorry to interrupt but yeah. just to kind of the cur- the curved wall is made of um Strucks and bricks from HGM. Yes. Or HG Matthews. Yes. So, um, yeah, so HG Matthews uh, kind of wanted to find a use for all of the... They dig up a very particular seam of clay, which is good for bricks, and then they dig up a whole load of other stuff, which isn't quite good enough, but is great clay. And so they've been looking for ways to use all this this byproduct, um, and they've been making the, the clay, the strucks... Uh, which was which, the curved wall. Um, and they also produce a, a sort of powdered clay, uh, which is what I predominantly use for my earth floors um, and a lot of the, the plastering products I'd, I sort of create. Um, and so we uh, we looked to make the, the sort of plasters for the museum from products that were available from H.G. Matthews. And so they also dig up quite a lot of chalk, um, so we made one plaster, which was a chalk plaster, so clay and chalk. And because they do wood-fired bricks, they get a whole load of ash that comes out of the kilns. So another plaster we did was uh, clay and ash. Um, they, those were the sort of two finishes that we created, um, really sort of localising our material to you know, what is available, essentially in a, a field in near Chesham, yeah, and that that was yeah our 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 focus, um, which I think I I think we uh, we fulfilled the brief fairly well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think definitely the the clay renders were were one of the stars of the show. <laughs> yes, well, they're so beautiful. They're really beautiful, and the way the colours change through the show is, is one of my favourite things. I think. Yeah. Yeah, really lovely. Great. I thought it was a shame that you went and put loads of uh, exhibitions. I know, it's really inconvenient. (laughs) Curators just putting, installing stuff in the whole room, we found very disappointing. (laughs) 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 But they work as good backgrounds. I saw lots of people stroking your walls, which was really really nice. Yeah, when you go around the exhibition, you see people touching their niches when no one's looking, which is really nice. Excellent. Well, that's good. I'm actually going uh, tomorrow. So uh, I look forward to having a little stroke well also your your team jeffrey is amazing rebecca yes. and becky and, and and everyone else is they were such a pleasure to work with oh thank you i mean they for me it was like uh i felt like i i picked my superhero team you know <laughs> how you get this superhero sort of ensemble films uh that was me uh yeah picking the, the best of the best and uh yeah, I mean they they worked so hard. It was unbelievable. I I would recommend a little more installation time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was quite tight, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it but was, don't yeah. worry. The 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 other project we're we're going to get in touch with you soon about is is has a much bigger um, or longer lead time. Yeah. <laughs> Great. We can do that one leisurely. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a couple of things I want to talk about in there. The so the wood wall I find is an interesting uh, material. Uh, what's what is that made of? So it's kind of shredded wood or like scraps of wood. Mm-hmm. Um, 
with uh, with some cement as a kind of a binder. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. And and they say I'm not in any way criticizing you, but I, I see that, that people use this as a you know it's used a lot in sustainable buildings, mm. but we know that cement isn't a particularly you know sustainable material. And I know I think you know there's there's Craig White talked about how um, yeah it's it's actually not a particularly high carbon material. It's just used you know when you see a motorway bridge or something, it's used in so much. Um, so is that the thinking between you know with that being a, in the sustainable materials palette or is it the reuse potential I suppose it's about relative evils a little bit mm-hmm. uh yes there is some cement in the wood wool board it's not predominantly cement it's predominantly wood and the cementitious material is acting as the binder and so there is in a wood wool board an element of biogenic carbon which is the important thing. So an alternative render-carrying board would be something like a plasterboard, which would be made of gypsum, which is made in the UK, so ding, regional points. Uh, but it is like the fairly extractive process from the ground, and the process of making the board is fairly reasonably energy-intensive, and there's quite a lot of waste from the plasterboard industry. And we're but, running out of, of And we're gypsum. running out of gypsum, exactly. Um, so... Actually, if you look at the global warming potential figures, they're not vastly different from each other in, in terms of the energy used in the manufacture of both products. But the Woodall board has biogenic carbon, so the fact that it's made of wood means it's also sequestering. So we need more products like that. And obviously, ideally, they wouldn't have cement as the binder. But slightly the issue with render carrying boards or like lining boards in general in construction is that there are loads of building standards around the, trans, like the spread of flame in construction. And so we need things which are going, in order for them to be applicable and useful, they need to not take part in spreading flame along the wall constructions that we develop. So that's part of the reason, I think, that these materials tend to be uh, kind of bound with chemical substances and treated with different things. It's to, to facilitate their use and kind of a, a really risk-averse construction industry. And there are other products that have been developed that are kind of exciting alternatives, but Woodwall Board is right now one of the more successful ones. Um, and we also think it looks really nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great to, to plaster onto. Yeah. It's, you know, you can't, can't really get a better, better mechanical key yeah. uh, from, from my point of view. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah I, I sort of maybe see it as a sort of, it's a stepping stone material. Um, yeah, but absolutely. It's, it's sort of the best for now. Um, and you know, soon we're going to have that that you know much much better, uh, maybe sort of wholly sustainable material. And I wonder if they if it can be done made bound with lime or something because there is a lime mm. render carrying board which has been developed um, by a company called Adaptivate, which mm-hmm. works with lime and kind of bits of 
hemp dust particle to kind of build up the aggregate and biogenic carbon of the sheet material. Um, but even lime needs to be fired fairly high temperatures. So, you know, there's, there's all, there are always issues around everything we use. Nothing, nothing is simple, basically. No, oh, absolutely. And especially yeah. when you're, you're looking at you know, the holistic uh, view of things, you know, mm. it's easy to say that this is a great material when you're looking at just one function. Mm. Uh, but if you're looking at everything, then, yeah, there is no perfect material. Mm. It's, a, it's a series of compromises and, uh, you know, where it excels in one place, it doesn't in another. And yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, being quite clear about, you know, choosing the best, the best available is yeah. for your sort of set of criteria is, is, is hard. But also in the context of a show like the Design Museum, I think it was really important that everything was beautiful. <laughs> and <laughs> and not for our purposes, but for the for the and not just for the show even, but the part of the curation of the exhibition is about making a case for the what the future could be and what it could look like, what it could be made of. And I think what we want the work that we're doing to convey is that these materials can also be beautiful. Because there's a lot of I, like of, of eco press, <laughs> um, kind of the I suppose there's a connotation to, with eco homes that you know that that they have a certain aesthetic that they perform in a certain way, and a lot of the work that we're looking to do is to demonstrate that these materials can be applied in contemporary buildings in a way which don't, don't they don't need to have those associations. They don't need to look a certain way. They don't need to feel a certain way. They can. I don't know, they can be part of a future without feeling like they're part of the past. Yeah, that's one of the things I particularly like about your work is that the, uh, it is it's great materials looking you know, clean and sharp and modern and, you know, the things that people want uh, with the materials that maybe they don't yet know they want. So what's going to happen at the end of uh, the exhibition? What's what's the afterlife of these materials? This is a kind of a conversation that's ongoing. Um, there are some elements of the build that will be reused uh, possibly in the next show, um, depending on whether the show uh, travels somewhere else. Um, some some oh, elements... So the, the way stage show travels? Yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that a thing that happens? I'm very much out of the you know, museum world. so I think so, yeah. So I think it's... Uh, I'm not sure exactly how, the, the mechanics of it, but I think basically um, other institutions or museums, uh, I guess, will pay to 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 buy, like to to get the show in their in their space. And then, you know, the question is, what elements of the build go with the show, and what elements don't? And I think um, depending on who or where the show goes if it if it does go anywhere um i think that will determine whether whether any of the elements will go uh, with it or not mm-hmm. um there is also a discussion so i mean we, we we're hoping that maybe some of the some of the kind of elements that um uh, could go to some institutions for educational purposes and we've been trying in the last few months some of the kind of leftover bits and bobs from the build uh some of the extra material that was purchased um uh we've been trying to find a home for them um in fact actually some of uh summer students from 
Summer and Paloma students from uh, Central St. Martin's had an exhibition um, and we used some of the uh, s- uh, the extra silicate blocks uh, from the show. And so there's there is a very strong kind of dialogue between us and the museum and um and there's a there's a kind of a clear understanding that we need to find something or an afterlife for these materials yeah one of the nice things about the stroke wall is that if the exhibition doesn't travel and we're still waiting to find out what happens to it most of those strokes could just go back to hg matthews and be sold again and if any of them are damaged they can be smushed up and reformed you know, so that they, they kind of can be remade into new products and, and have another life. Great. I love it. Not sure about the K walls, though, Jeffrey. Well, I don't yeah. think they'll travel very well. Maybe we'll keep those. <laughs> maybe, we'll keep, we'll, maybe we'll try and keep some of these in the office. Yeah, our, our <laughs> increasingly hoardy office. The cave. <laughs> cave and bits. So I wanted to talk a little bit. Um, there was an interesting moment just before we arrived on site, uh, I hope you're all right to talk about this, um, where we discovered that there wasn't going to be enough uh, space to do the, the sort of plaster build-up that, that we thought we were going to do. And I bring this up because uh, I think the thought process that everyone went through was, you know, we've got to get this done in time, you know, there's budgets, how do we do it? What's the what's the solution? What do we change? Um, and I think everyone instantly kind of jumped to the you know what can what do we have to buy to fix the problem? And and I think uh, yeah, I think you did that, and I think we did that, and I think the the, sh- the guys um, project managing the the show did that. And then we it took us a little while to sort of discuss and go around and find a way of actually you know we didn't want to support that. Uh, you know, that waste culture it was in the entire you know, name of the show you know, I think that's an issue that, that happens throughout construction and actually kind of finding finding the way to use what's your local you know, if the materials were already there so we wanted to use those It's moments like that in, a, in any project where a lot of care and thought to source things carefully and and specify materials which you think are right for a project gets undone and but it's very frustrating it happens quite a lot and i think particularly in a context the context of an exhibition install that the builders that work with exhibition installation and shop fit outs they're really expert at doing things quick and getting things done and making them look right and and so their first point of call is like well i need to get something i need to fix this problem i need to fix it really quickly and it's got to be fixed from the nearest builders merchants that I can get my hands on and that's that's how it's going to be done but everything's going to look exactly like you meant it to but behind the scenes it's going to perform in a totally different way and trying to to stop that from happening is really difficult when you're in like being pressured from your clients and the builders and you want them to not have a difficult time of it as well that's the hardest thing is like you know they're like well the thing you're suggesting we do will take five times as long and cost me money because the supplier I was going to rely on isn't available and I can't charge my client more for it. And that always feels really difficult because you want the client to say, well, actually, no, I want it to be done well, so of course I'll pay you more, but that never happens. Mm, um, it's not, not the way it works. <laughs> no. And, and it's, 
the main thing I think that's the problem in situations like that, and it's across all projects, is the expectations around time. Because in any project, you want to work with a lot of the natural materials that we we work with, you have to have different expectations about install and build times. You know, if you're working with wet trades, like things like lime and clay, or things like hempcrete, especially if you're um, installing on site directly, you've you've got to have an understanding of how long these will take to cure and go off and dry and whatever. And then rooms are pretty damp for quite a long time afterwards. It means you can't do stuff quickly. You can't come and fit a kitchen because, you know, the room's full of condensation for another three months or whatever. Um, and stuff like that happens. But if if our expectations were adjusted, which would just take a different way of thinking about programming, all of that would be part and parcel of building because you would want to be building in the lowest energy way. But we're not there yet, especially in an expression design where they're like, well, we've got 500 objects arriving in three days, so we've got to fix that problem. At least another element of this is like, actually, you have to look at all the different options, you know, like what is absolutely everything that's available to you. And and if you are, you know, I think we, you know, we, we decided in the end to kind of go for the, for, for the, for the, for the option that we went with, because it made more most sense um, with the kind of the ethos of the exhibition, but it was also, it was also the one that saved the most time actually as well. So I think it's sometimes also, it's a, it's a matter of like balancing prior or deciding what the priority is in that moment and how, how you go about resolving the issue. And also I think the fact that, summer was very far away from uh from the build gave gave her a very different kind of perspective which then gave us a different perspective and i think that that always really helps actually is to be able to have a conversation around the issue that you're having with someone that is not in it yeah it's really hard that but it is it is important it always makes a difference because we we don't all get involved on site like we take the different projects, you know, we're always running different things at the same time. So, like, George was there on site every day facing the stresses and engaging with everyone and wanting to keep everyone engaged and on board and, and happy. And then the person who's not there <laughs> can sometimes be the one to say the, the uncomfortable thing. Um, and then you can take turns mm-hmm. being the one who's the bad guy. Although, in this case, the solution, <laughs> I think, was good for everyone, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting that I think we all individually went through the same thought process, which was like, how do we fix it quick? And then how do we fix it right? And where's the compromise between what can we what can we do? I think, yeah, the solution turned out to be um, really sort of elegant and and fit fit all of the all of the objectives. I was very, very pleased with with how we overcame, you know, collectively overcame a, uh, a an obstacle. I think also like the context of this build was um, the way that things were kind of uh, different parties kind of communicated with each other, I think was really important in another, in a, in, in another context, I think it would have been more kind of like, this is no longer my responsibility. And so it's on you to resolve it. Um, and I think that uh, distance can be very problematic um, and, um, and actually does not necessarily give you the results that you that you want. 
And I think always the having a dialogue amongst the kind of you know the the tradesperson, the uh, the contractor, the architect, or the designer, and being able to continue having that conversation always has a better result in the end. Yeah, that's the culture we want to see. Exhibitors, I know that you're not particularly, um, you know, you weren't the curators, but is there anyone uh, who's exhibiting that you are really, like, really want to sort of shout about or champion? The materialism pieces by Studio Drift, they I think, are, are amazing. They are maybe the most powerful thing, I think. And yeah, they're extraordinary. They're, okay. Yeah, they're yeah. super powerful. And they, and they, and they, I think they, they fit in really well in the kind of room that we designed for them. What are they? So basically what they've done is they've taken several different objects. So they take it, let's, let's talk about maybe the Beetle, okay? The Volkswagen Beetle. And they've, um, they've broken it down to its essential material elements and uh, into very kind of recognizable volumes, which are basically, you know, uh, extruded rectangles or or squares essentially and then it kind of shows you how much of each material is used to make up this uh, this product um, and actually like the complexity involved in like in a product like this and how many materials come together to to deliver something that we don't really we don't really think about um, because we kind of just use it and we don't really think about all the work involved in um, in it functioning and all the materials that are extracted yeah. from the earth in order for it to function. Um, and I think, I think it's just really a, quite an amazing um, moment of mm -hmm. realization, actually, to abstract an object that is so familiar to you that it becomes, you see it in a very different way. Yeah. I can never look at a beetle in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> or an Maybe iPhone. that's a good thing. Or an iPhone. The iPhone one is really good because they did yeah. an iPhone and a Nokia next to each other. And that's obviously quite small, like they're okay. framed and they're on the wall. But you sort of see all the different constituent, mainly metals, you know, all the way down to a tiny, tiny speck of gold, you know, going into the iPhone. But then the biggest yeah. cube in each um, phone, so in the iPhone, there's a big chunk of glass. And in the Nokia, there's a big chunk of plastic, essentially. But to see the kind of where the way technology has shifted uh, yeah. from one material to another over the evolution of the smartphone is really cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's really a really beautiful piece actually. It's really smart. Yeah. Um, and the welly boots is really good. That's really <gasps> my, the that's welly my second, boots. Second favorite thing in the show. That's the one summer. Yeah. There's a, there's Tell a me piece about the welly that DC collected um, in the in the precious waste space. And it's a, a series of colourful rubber blobs. And they are the waste from the production of welly boots when the moulds are filled and all the drips come off the moulds and then the drips accumulate on the ground. And so you have a kind of layering of like really viscous rubber building up a bit like a candle. Exactly. But in rainbow, it's really, really nice. Very seductive, strange objects set up. Yeah, great. Um, I, I mean, I was very pleased to see uh, Biome were on the, the exhibitors list. Um, I'm a big, big champion of what they're they're up to. I, yeah, I, I actually can't wait for them to just be, you know, producing mycelium insulation. Uh, and I am like right on the cusp. Have you seen they've 
started creating uh, mycelium lampshades. Oh, uh, no, I haven't seen they that. They just no. launched those, and I'm on that. Uh, it's a, quite an, a big expense, but I'm like, I, I, that, that should finish off my house just perfectly. I, that's what I want. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and then also the, uh, the cork. Uh, I've forgotten his name. Matt uh, from CSK Architecture. He built the, the cork house. The, cre- the credit on the web on Arc Daily <laughs> is Matthew Barnett Howland, Dido Milne, and Oliver Wilton, who the three of them were the architects and designers of the Cork House. Yeah, well, I was I was very pleased to see um, that that getting in there. I mean, I think what they've done with Cork is is just quite simply unbelievable. Right? It's it's really pushing what's what's possible with them, with the material. Yeah, it's really exciting. And the way that they develop the research around it, I think, is um, very thorough and really great. We've had them come talk to our students a few times. And oh, do you? It's very impressive um, as a piece of research, I think, as well. They, they carried out some of that research in the bar that, in the UCL in London. And they built a sort of small-scale prototype, and then they subjected it to all the different tests that the, the BRE would expect, and kind of the weatherproofing, the fireproofing tests, and things like that. And it's those sorts of processes that we need to go through for loads of other natural materials. But in the case of this project, you know, those costs were borne, partly they partly were funded because it was a research project, partly those costs were borne by the project, by the client. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's problematic that those things need to be carried by individuals at the moment when they could be nationally supported processes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the project yet until I go and see Matt, but... Uh, it seems like it's one of those classic, uh, you know, designer really pushing something for their own project because you know they're the client, they're the only client that's going to go like, yeah, let's let's experiment, let's try it. Good things come out of, come out of those uh, those projects. Yeah, hopefully, <laughs> certainly some learning. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about waste age? It's very beautiful. Go have a look. <laughs> Wait, how long's it on for? I think it's until Jan, Jan, end of Jan. Okay. 2022. Great. At the Design Museum in Kensington. That's correct. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Well, thank you so much to George and Summer for taking the time. Uh, we have actually recorded a whole extra episode on something that Summer was working on. So look forward to bringing that to you sometime in the future. As promised, I went to Waste Age, the exhibition in the Design Museum. Uh, it was great. It was really, really lovely to see clay plaster and block form clay alongside such fantastic, innovative ideas. Uh, I came away with just a whole sketchbook full of, of people I want to talk to and products I want to look into. I thought that maybe not enough was made of the clay, but then I would think that, wouldn't I? Yes. Uh, so, yeah, get along to that and check it out. It's on until January in the Design Museum in London. Uh, reminder to head to the Building Sustainability Community uh, Facebook group, uh, chat, share, discuss, uh, give feedback, uh, make connections with other people doing great things. Um, if you are new, if this is your first episode, then welcome. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do make sure you subscribe and check out all the past interviews. There are so many that will interest you if you've enjoyed this episode. Um, if you are back again, then thank you. It's always great to have you here. Uh, if you could do me a favour and just share uh, the episode wherever you can. Uh, and if you get a chance, do a review in the Apple Podcasts. That would be brilliant. Um, so I hope you're all happy and well. And just a reminder that if you're not, it's really OK to tell someone and to talk about it. Please look after your mental health. All the best. Until next time. Bye bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 